0: This is episode number 649 with the renowned data science educators Kirill Amarmenko and Atle de Pontev. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, Let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today is a special episode featuring not just one acclaimed guest, but two acclaimed guests at once. Kirill Aramenko, if you haven't already heard of him, is one of our two guests. He's the founder and CEO of Super Data Science, an e-learning platform. And he founded the Super Data Science podcast in 2016 and hosted the show until he passed me the reins two years ago. Our second guest is Adeline de Ponteve. He was a data engineer at Google in Paris before becoming a content creator. In 2020, he took a break from data science content to produce and star in a Bollywood film featuring Miss Universe, Arna Sandu. Together, Kirill and Adlain have created dozens of data science courses, and they are the most popular data science instructors on the Udemy platform, with over 2 million students. After a multi-year hiatus from creating courses, they recently published a new course called Machine Learning in Python Level 1. And that is what we're focusing on in today's episode. So today's episode will appeal to anyone who's familiar with Kirill and Adlain and who'd like to hear about what they've been up to over the past couple of years— why they stopped creating courses, and why they're back at it now. After we get through that, this episode will also serve as an introduction to machine learning, so we'll primarily appeal to folks who aren't already expert at ML. That said, I've been doing machine learning for over 15 years, and I still learned a few critical new pieces of information during filming this episode, so this could serve as a fun, lighthearted refresher, even for experts. In this episode, Kirill and Adlain introduce machine learning concepts such as supervised versus unsupervised learning, classification errors, logistic regression, feature scaling, the adjusted R-squared metric, the assumptions of linear regression, and the elbow method. All right, you ready for this highly educational episode? Let's go. Oh, on the Super Data Science Podcast with Kiro and Atlain. This is amazing. Welcome back to the show, guys. Where in the world are you calling in from? Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'm from I'm calling from Dubai.
1: <laughs> and I'm calling from Gold Coast, Australia.
0: Yeah, so for those of our listeners who are conscious of those planetary locations, I'm in New York and between New York dubai and australia uh guess what some people are really suffering to make this episode for you <laughs> and i'm the only one who's not <laughs> <laughs> so atlant is up late yes uh in dubai and kirill it's like what four in the morning or something crazy for five you five know? thirty now five thirty in the morning now yeah so but you had to probably get up at like four thirty to make this happen yeah. so Appreciate it, man. Hey, um, saw so the
1: sunrise. It's really good for the first
0: time. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I'm seeing the moon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got a really special episode today. I'm really excited about this. We're going to talk about what you guys have been up to lately, and this is going to be a really interesting technical deep dive episode. Um, in a way that, for beginners. Go, yeah, for beginners, we seldom go this deep on technical stuff for listeners, it's really exciting. I like this format, I'm glad that you guys prepared for this. So you both launched the extremely popular Super Data Science hands-on catalog of courses seven years ago. I feel confident, though I haven't rigorously checked this, that you guys are the top two data science instructors on Udemy all time, I feel like that's safe to say. You've reached over two million students worldwide, and now you're revamping your offering with new teaching styles and much more, what's changed in the last seven years and why?
1: Uh, well, thanks, John. Thanks, first of all, for having us. Super excited to be back on the show. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. I was telling Adlan that I'm a little bit nervous <laughs> coming oh, on, really? <laughs> but excited. You know, it's that nervousness and excitement, which is always good. Um, and I guess like what, uh, what really changed was, um, in the seven years that we've been teaching, uh, the online educa- world of online education first and foremost has grown a lot and developed. Of course, you know, data science has changed, but also the online education uh, world has gone forward, and um, expectations have changed of students. Uh, for instance, mostly relating to uh, the quality of content. Of course, you know, we've always strived for very high quality content. Um, so we kind of we're always confident about that but another thing that has changed is um, time times like everybody has less and less time it's it's a stark difference to what it was 7 years ago when you know people were excited and prepared to watch like long tutorials and that was the norm now people want and fair, fair enough we live in a very fast world people want um, insights and information and value fast so one of the things that we really worked on this time around was shortening our tutorials like really getting to the point very quickly and making that point and it was very interesting to see like because we we do have um a lot of students we have lots of reviews we have we talk to our students when when we need some feedback and that was one of the big things that's what i would say what do you think adnan
2: yeah, I totally agree. Oh, first, what we have been doing for the past seven years is to listen to all students' feedback. Uh, you know, we have the reviews in Udemy. And uh, I'm sure uh, same uh, as you, Kirill, I often uh, uh, you know uh, read the reviews and uh, try to understand what people uh, like and don't like and uh, how we can improve our courses. So yes, totally agree, agree with you. I noticed that, uh, that uh, sometimes uh, uh, our tutorials were a bit too long. So you're definitely right. Uh, people have less time, but also have more distractions. And therefore, that reduces mm. also the attention span. And that's why it's uh, much better to, uh, you know, fit video lectures into uh, the attention span so, at, so that at least uh, people can get the maximum knowledge. So what you're telling me is you converted all of your courses into a TikTok format. <laughs> yeah, it will, <laughs> it will, you know, it will <laughs> go into that direction. Yes. No, not all of
0: Yeah, and another interesting piece of context here for listeners who aren't aware. So you guys have been on, and probably many people know that Kirill was host of the Super Data Science Podcast for its first four years. I've now been hosting for a little over two years. But Kirill, you were-
1: congrats.
0: (laughs) Yay. We love John. Congrats, Uh, John. And so Kirill, you were on the show in 2021 after I'd been hosting for about six months. And Alain was shortly thereafter as well. And at that time- neither of you was creating courses for Udemy. You weren't actively creating content after having been doing it for five years and having some of the most popular courses in the platform, certainly in data science. So what changed that now you've both decided to say, you know, now's the right time. We've got to get back in and be creating new content.
1: I'd love to remember how we were talking about it, like at the the end of those five years, (laughs) we were like, (laughs) we're we're never creating courses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Which I think we just burned out. Like we were so like working so much on on all these things. What what do you reckon?
2: Yeah. For me, like a lot of things happened in the past two years and I've realized a lot of things. Um, So first uh, I took uh, those two years break to, you know, uh, do a bit of cinema. And that was great, uh, but doing only cinema is uh, is tough because you know you always have to wait. Uh, there's not much going on, especially as opposed to uh, you know online education where we used to make one course per month, and so that that was so dynamic. And uh, and so I I kind of missed it at some point. I wanted to get back into it, and uh, uh, plus I realized, and this is the big realization I've had recently, is that. Uh, in life you really can grow you know you can really leverage a high level growth with the compound effect and so since for 7 years we have been we had been doing those courses well you know i would uh, i could get back on a high level growth by starting again those courses with kirill because even though i took a di- a 2 years break well uh, you know it's like riding a bicycle getting back to it was easy and i could you know mm. take uh, from where i left things off so uh, so yes, now I've decided to to you know, continue with online education, creating courses, and at the same time, uh, uh, you know, continuing cinema as a hobby. Nice.
0: And I, I actually I remember in your episode, Adlin it was uh, episode number five hundred five, mm-hmm. and in that episode, I specifically remember you saying I didn't do research to remember this. I just remember that you said something like you will get back into it when you feel like there's something inspiring you to do it, that Mm. you felt like you had covered all of the things that you needed to cover at that time. That's Um, absolutely true.
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. At that time, uh, you know, when we finished, when we started taking this break, indeed, uh, it was kind of saturated. Like, we had taught everything we could have possibly taught with, you know, our knowledge. Uh, We had taught, you know, up to state-of-the-art AI. And we even... uh, uh expanded to other topics like blockchain uh but at some point it's true it's like uh yes there was not much else we could teach uh but now so much has happened in the past two years and so there are many new things we can teach and this is a a really great feeling because now i'm you know carol and i are teaching some new stuff we're working on some new stuff and uh and at the same time we are learning because a lot of things have happened so it's very exciting
0: nice all right, and we are going to get into the content of your new course very soon, but uh, I just have a, curious, a curiosity question for you, which is, have you used data science to understand your students' needs? So you're talking about, you know, reading reviews to help you figure out where you should be shifting your content. Is there any kind of data science that you can actually apply to? Uh, to I don't know uh, views or <laughs> I don't know competitor information anything like that.
1: Oh, uh, thank God we have; otherwise, we'd be so hypocritical <laughs> <and> <laughs> <seniors>.
0: <laughs> We teach this science. I know. Them. I felt a little nervous <laughs> asking <laughs> the question because I was like, "Oh uh, no,
1: no, we have, of course we've we've used uh, everything from you know from surveys, you know this the standard easy like quantitative data collection uh, to the point of." Um, natural language processing of uh, user reviews because there's so many of them you know hundreds of thousands of reviews over the seven years so we would collect them to um, analyze them with uh, NLP or um, reviewing uh, feedback qualitative feedback that we get also through surveys but for open-ended responses Um, and to the point of we have a chatbot that is I think at some point we were getting, I'm not sure what the number is now, but uh, we were getting 10,000 questions. I might be uh, quoting this incorrectly, but somewhere around the lines of 10,000 questions per week. And we even got an award from Udemy for the most <laughs> uh, questions answered or some, in some like, period of a year or something. Like that This was uh, in 2018. And um, yeah, so we have a chatbot that uh does for the first tier of questions on Uni, so if you ever ask a question, uh, the first response will come from a chatbot, and then uh, only um if the chatbots' are able to help, then one of the teaching assistants will jump in which we you know whom we have also a few of working um and so yeah, so we have this whole database of uh, typical questions and answers, and not only have we gone through them, but <laughs> a chatbot has been created to be able to answer. Not as good as ChatGPT,
2: but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, still, still. But it would be great if we could integrate ChatGPT in uh, our courses to answer the questions. Yeah, and ChatGPT
1: four is coming out soon, right? Like in whatever well, few weeks. I think weeks? those are
2: so. Yeah, yeah GPT four.
0: Um, it may be out, but actually, by the time this episode is released, or or shortly thereafter. Yeah. But uh, I think like the, the versioning is different. Like we use a different. Like. It's ChatGPT version 1 GPT is 3. the new one it mm. just came out. So I don't think yes. we would call it ChatGPT 4, even though GPT 4 okay. is it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so amazing. I, I actually didn't know about that chatbot. And so, yeah, you've gone. It looks like you've identified all the data science opportunities possible with oh, I think there's always more.
1: There's always oh, more yeah. you can do. Yeah. I
0: yeah. guess, yeah, maybe with uh, maybe by the time there's Chat GPT four in a few yeah. years, <laughs> mm. that will just create your course for you. Just Chat GPT four, write me the script for my machine
1: uh, learning course, <laughs> John. But no, 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 joking. Like, like you, you know how you use the uh, in your season's greetings for Christmas. You use Chat GPT yeah. to write write it, yeah. um, and that was really fun to listen to. Like already chat has been out for what three four weeks or a month now month, or, or maybe two months um like now creating new content i use it for research you know like rather than googling things and like um finding out oh you know what's what's uh some t- technical question and then going through 50 different links i just like ask chat gpd and gives me answers But yesterday I found when it can lie to you. It's just like sometimes, sometimes it says incorrect things. You gotta be careful. But it definitely helps with research. Like one of my friends in Sydney is a lawyer and he was visiting me here recently. And I just told him, like, hey, there's this thing. What would you like to ask it? And he's like, give me case law. Because for lawyers, case law, especially in the Western legal system, Mm -hmm. case law is very important and it's really hard to find. And you know, you have to dig through thousands of cases to find the one relevant to. Here is like Give me a case law relating to blah, blah, this topic. And then Chai GPT just spits out all of these things. So um, I think it's, to your point, um, it will definitely transform uh, the way we do um, lots of different jobs. You know, like how DALI 2 and Midjourney and those things are already transforming art, right? Like artwork, you, you can just create it in, in five seconds. Mm-hmm. I think Chai GPT will also transform lots of things and the applications are incredible. In fact, Adlan has been working on um, uh, a video or a series of videos on how to apply ChatGPT for data science, and you know he's already got ten use cases that like re- that blow your mind on how you. Yes,
2: use yes. No crazy, crazy thing. We we plan to actually only do five data science use cases, but because uh, it was so cool and so amazing, I ended up doing ten without mm. you know realizing. You just dad... You just asked for five more from ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we actually did uh, a couple of episodes ago. An episode came out number 646 with a layperson, a brewer who uses mm-hmm. ChatGPT for lots of different purposes. And so we provided uh, lots of links in the show notes to kinds of resources that people that listeners could access for coming up with ideas of using it themselves. But for example... This guy, this brewer, he's using ChatGPT for creating marketing copy and for generating blog posts. And so it's cool to me that these kinds of tools like Dolly2 or MidJourney that you mentioned, Carol, and now ChatGPT, you can be taking advantage of the state of the art in AI without ever needing to write a line of code or having any experience in data science, which is really cool. I know, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah looking forward to seeing those cases as well. For those of our listeners who still want to learn the fundamentals of machine learning and be able to understand how they could be creating applications like this themselves as opposed to just using them, you guys have your new course. It's called uh, Machine Learning Python Level 1, and it provides a solid foundation in machine learning with, of course, Python examples, and it's a super engaging course can you elaborate for us on the content in this course? Like, we can start with <laughs> just kind of a general overview, and then I know we're going to dig into a lot of the technical content in detail.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, uh, we, before we dive into that, I feel like if I were a listener, I'd be sitting there and thinking, where are those 10 use cases <laughs> for data oh. science? Data science? <laughs> yeah, But that's not, I just want to say that's not the topic of this episode, and we're still working on them. So, you know, maybe once once they're released and once they're available, we'll we'll uh, uh, hit John up and maybe be able to share them somehow through, through the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be ideal maybe for like a five minute Friday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Something like that. We won't, we won't leave you hanging. Don't worry. (laughs) Otherwise just like announced it or mentioned it and didn't bring, go back to it. But yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks for the, Yeah, for for, um, the question, Um, Adlan, do you want to start maybe on 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 this one? Like, uh, I think this course was actually Adlan's Adlan's original idea, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So first, it's a course for beginners. Like, uh, we are starting from the very beginning. We are trying to lay the foundations of uh, machine learning. So it's really a course on the foundations of machine learning, covering three branches, the three uh, you know uh, uh, major ones, which are regression, classification. And clustering, and for each of these branches, we explain. Well, Kirill explains the theory, and again, uh, we have like changed uh, our style. We have uh, brand new slides that uh, apply all the feedback we have listened to over the past few years, and uh, and you have also also have a practical activity. And each of the branch covers one model. For regression, it's linear regression. For classification, it's logistic regression. And for clustering, it is K-means k- clustering. And uh, so yes, for uh, for each of those uh, branches, we do the theory and a practical activity on a real world case study. Yeah, and, and we uh, cover uh, technical topics uh, like the R squared, the adjusted R squared, uh, the accuracy, the confusion matrix, the elbow method, and other uh, topics. And,
1: and I, w- I would like to add that for those of our, sh- the, for all of those of the listeners who haven't um, taken any of our courses before, um, the way we uh, teach is um, kind of like, it's different to what you would expect from, I guess, a data science course. Like, for example, John, your courses are very mathematical heavy. You even have a course on mathematical foundations of data science or machine learning, right? So, uh, and you know, you pick up your book. It's also um, math math heavy. As I understand, not in, a, not in a bad way. You explain all the maths, and that's important, right? Like you, you reiterated the podcast. It's important to know all these things to really understand data science, um, like on a very deep level. But um, from from what we teach, we focus on more of the like the approach. Like if you think like of a car, it's like an, I call it the car analogy. If you want to drive a car, you can learn all the things inside the engine and understand what a crankshaft is and it, what a camshaft is and what the difference is and how to, you know, fix things. Or you can just get in the car, understand the basics of, you know, where the gas is, where the brakes are, how to use the steering wheel. Uh, So get explained all the basic principles of how this thing works and then get a lot of practice driving the car. And that's how most people, 95% of the population learns to drive the car, right? Don't even need to know where, how to change your oil or filters or anything like that, just where to put the petrol in. And so that's um approach we take with data science, especially in beginner-focused courses. We remove all the the heavy mathematics. We give a little bit of mathematics, the one that is like very relevant, but ultimately it's like, here's the gas, here's the brake, here's the steering wheel, this is where you put the petrol in. That's the part that I explain. And then Adlan explains the driving back and forth to different locations. Adlan gives all the practical aspects. And so in that way, while you're not becoming an, a deep expert in the field, you are getting a quicker start. You're getting a faster start. So you, with, you know, this course is what three hours, um, um, and you can. By the way, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're not trying to pitch the course on the podcast. We will give as much as we can in terms of the technical aspects in in a few minutes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned that to me before we started recording, so it's the uh, yeah. the audience is hearing just that for the first time that you're not. Yeah,
1: hearing. yeah. I'm just is, using this course yeah. as an example. Like, even from listening to this podcast, you'll probably already learn quite a few technical aspects that you can apply without knowing the deep mathematics, but you can really apply. And I think uh, a lot of like, we can change the world by we, I mean, collectively, including the listeners, all of us, we can change the world by knowing how to correctly apply these very powerful tools. And then, for those of us who are interested, of course, who want to go deeper, yes, of course, learn. Uh, all the mathematics and maybe you know improve the tools further, but the starting point I think should be at least understanding you know like like driving a car how to apply these things and, and getting that practical experience so you're doing it correctly. So that's how what we focus on how we focus on uh, building our courses.
0: Nice. So let's dig into some of this content. Let's give listeners a great education here. Like you say, you're not here to sell; you're here to educate. So we are going to get big into these topics. Uh, but so maybe before we have that conversation, who is your target audience for your machine learning Python level one course? Which is probably similar to who your target audience is for the rest of this podcast episode. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a good point. Um, I'll say from my side, and maybe Adlan, you can add um, to that. So I think the I would say the target audience is anyone who wants to get started into machine learning. Data science who has no idea how these things work at all. Um, that's number one. Number two, anyone who wants to um, not build a career in data science, but add data science to their existing skill sets. So you might be, uh, for instance, in marketing, or you might be in um, operations. You might be like in virtually any function of a business. You might be an entrepreneur. Um, you want to get like an edge and be able to apply some of these tools to understand maybe your customers better or why you have a backlog uh, in in your business or which company to invest or where where to launch your next, uh, next shop or something like that. So analyze some data that you have and you don't know how to do it. Um, and so that's, I would say, the two. And I think the third would be anybody who's um, already an intermediate data scientist um, and would like, but specifically would like to refresh on some of the things that uh, are in the foundations. Because once we get to get more experienced and have more exposure to uh, this field of work, it's easy to get, um, you know, to forget what was uh, in the beginning and what are the foundations. Uh, of this field. So if anybody wants to refresh their knowledge this would
0: also be relevant. Nice. Sounds great. And then I guess a big distinction between what we're about to do in the podcast right now versus your course is that when people do the course, it'll be hands-on in Python. Whereas this podcast will not be hands-on in Python. So this will be I think <laughs> the the market <laughs> for this particular podcast is even broader than your course because there might be lots of people out there who are like, you know, I don't know if I want to be learning Python right now. You know, you're like I'm an investment manager or I'm a busy executive or whatever. And you're like, I don't think writing hands on Python is in my future, at least not for now, but I would like to have an introduction to machine learning, understand all the concepts, all the key concepts.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point, John. Thanks. Um, uh, And yeah, hopefully we can give a lot of value to listeners in this podcast already.
0: Nice. No doubt you will, given all of your experience. So uh, you guys have come prepared with some specific topics that you want to cover. I know that the first one is explaining what supervised learning is in machine learning relative to unsupervised learning.
2: Yes, and uh, I'll take this one. So um, the main difference between supervised learning and unsupervised learning is that in supervised learning, you know what to predict. You have a dependent variable at uh, which you already have the ground truth, or you know the labels for it in past data. And so you can use this, uh, l- these labels in the dependent variable to train your model. While in unsupervised learning, you don't know what to predict, and therefore you don't have a dependent variable. You only have some inputs. For any machine learning model, you will have some inputs. But uh, in supervised learning, you will have an output with some labels. And in unsupervised learning, you won't have an output yet. Because in unsupervised learning, what the model will do is that it will identify uh, either some clusters or some patterns and usually the way it identifies them is by creating a dependent variable you know creating some uh, an output which after you can transform to uh, a supervised learning model so uh, we give this a uh, big uh, case study in one of our courses where you know you start with an unsupervised learning you're trying to un- uh, identify fraud and credit card transactions so you use the unsupervised learning to uh, Uh, you know, figure out the frauds and the model will actually um, uh, find and build a dependent variable, after which, well, it will be able to predict if, uh, you know, um, the result of that dependent variable for future credit card transactions. Cool. That
0: sounds like a great example. Yeah. So with supervised learning, we have labels that we can use as, as you described, the dependent variable in the model, the output of the model So in both cases, supervised or unsupervised, you have some kind of input to the model. But with supervised learning, you also have this label that can be predicted. Um, And yeah, you gave a really cool example there, including with credit card fraud, where you could use unsupervised learning to predict what those labels should be and then uh, use that in a supervised learning model. But there also might be circumstances, I guess, where we... We we use unsupervised learning without necessarily the intention of being able to do supervised downstream, where we just want to understand our data better, identify some patterns, things like that, right?
2: Correct. Yes. Yes. It's usually patterns or uh, clusters. We also have this other example where uh, we uh, identify clusters of customers in a mall. So we have as the input uh, the age, the estimated salary, uh, their spending score, you know, which is a score from one to one hundred. Uh, where uh, the closer to one hundred, the more they spend in the mall. And at the end, what the clustering, therefore unsupervised learning model identifies, is different clusters of customers. Where some, uh, you know, will uh, um, spend more in the mall while having uh, a low income, or uh, some uh, spend d- don't spend too much in the mall while having a high income, or uh, you know, you have different categories. And and then once you identify those clusters, then you can have different. Uh, you know, uh, target advertising uh, uh, with different, uh, you know, advertising that you could apply on them. And uh, yes, this can lead to uh, like terrific uh, results. Nice.
0: Super cool. All right. So that's supervised versus unsupervised learning. And I imagine that must be one of the first topics that you cover in your machine learning
1: no, oh, actually, one of the last ones because oh, uh, once we get yes. to
0: clustering, oh, so, we first talk about regression, then classification, then we get to clustering. That's when we cover. Nice. So when people are using regression and classification, they're doing supervised learning, but uh, don't know. But because but they don't. Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> um, and I guess it doesn't. It, that that's a testament to how you guys do your course, where you're giving practical applications and you're teaching the theory as it's needed. People don't need to know that there are these different categories, supervised, unsupervised, um, until you get to a point where you're like, oh, now we're getting into clustering, which is completely different, because now all of a sudden we have data without labels.
2: Cool. Yes, yes.
0: All right, and uh, so when you're training your supervised learning models, um, there's a really important concept around whether it's getting the labels correct. So your supervised learning models, you can say, you could take some small percentage of the data, you could say, take 20% of it or 10% of it, and you keep it off to the side so that when you train your model, you can later evaluate and confirm that on data that were set aside that the model didn't have to train with, that the model still works well. Um, But there are situations where it misclassifies, it makes mistakes. And so these are called false positives, false negatives. Kirill, do you want to... Yes, that's our second
1: second uh, topic yeah. we wanted to cover today, false positives, false negatives. Um, so if you imagine, like, let's talk about a like, uh, classification model, I don't know, for instance, a logistic regression, and we'll look at the example to make things more... Um, give, like, more... Um, visual uh, or uh, impactful, let's look at the example of predicting uh, tumors, like for example, like ca- cancer, lung cancer or something like that, which is a very important, important topic because it affects people's health. So you got to get these things as right, as, as correct as you can possibly get them. So let's say a, a um, computer vision model or some kind of um, machine learning model looks at some images of lungs. And after you know it's been trained, it's learned how to predict uh, lung cancer. Um, like like your human can still make mistakes. So by looking at a like, like a given image of somebody's lungs, it can say for one of four things. Well, one of four things can happen. It can either say yes, there is cancer, or no, there isn't cancer. Now, in the case when it says yes, there is cancer. Um, and indeed the person in reality, let's look at the facts of the world. What is the reality of the universe we live in? Indeed, that person has cancer. That's called a true positive. That means the model said, uh, yes, it's positive, and it's true that it's positive in the real world. Now, in the case when the model says, no, the person doesn't have cancer, that's a negative. The model gives a negative, and in the real world, it can also be the case that it is, you know, hopefully that the person doesn't have cancer. So that's a true negative. So the model said, no cancer, negative, and it's true that it's negative. So those are the two outcomes, the only two outcomes that we want to have. Ideally, we want all of them to be true negative so nobody has cancer. But, you know, the reality is that cancer does happen. So at least we want to know when it is correct. So those outcomes are acceptable for model. Those are the outcomes that we uh, look for. Uh, True positives and true negatives. Now, there's two other outcomes that are dangerous and that we want to minimize, but they still happen, and those are the errors. So, when, for example, when the model says that the person has cancer, so it gives a positive result, it is modeling, predicts that they do have cancer from the image. But in reality, in the real world, they don't have cancer. It's a mistake. It was a uh, the model made a mistake saying that they have cancer. So that is called a false positive. So the model is giving a positive result, the person has cancer, but in the real world, in the real state of things, it's false. And that's called a type 1 error. As you can imagine, it would be very devastating for a person to hear that they have cancer when they actually don't. Um, and uh, that's uh, you know something that needs to be... Um, checked or you know like double checked, triple checked or whatever at least we you know we want to minimize these kinds of errors um and then there's a type 2 error which is when a model says the person doesn't have cancer so it gives a negative result and uh in the real world in the real state of things the person does have cancer and that's called a false negative and that's a type 2 error and arguably that's even more dangerous because in this case the person has cancer, but they've been told that they don't have cancer, and so that cancer can progress, can get worse, and nobody's treating it, nobody's looking at it, um, and so a false negative is another type of error we really want to avoid, want to minimize, and it's a false negative. And so, if uh, you you can um, evaluate how well a model is working, or how well a model, how predictive and how accurate a model is, by Taking all these four things is you know you can even put them together. It'll be hard to explain on on a podcast what a confusion matrix looks like. But if you look at, if you take all these four things and put them into a matrix, uh, just like two by two, two rows by two columns, that's called the confusion matrix. And if you add up the uh, true positives and the true negatives, so the correct predictions, uh, let's say you have 100 cases total, you have 80 true positives and 10 true negatives, so that's 90. Uh, that the model predicted correctly, and it has seven false positives and three false negatives. So if you add up the true positives and true negatives, and you divide by the total number of cases, so 90 divided by 100, you get the accuracy ratio, which is, in this case, 90%. So you want the model to be, you know, the ratio to be as high as possible. If your model has only got an accuracy ratio of 50%, what's the point of that model? It's like uh, flipping a coin, uh, doing a coin toss. So yeah, so that's uh, basically false positive and false negative. And I guess what we wanted uh, people to take away from this podcast, understanding the difference between them. So if you keep this cancer example in mind, uh, it will help you um, uh, get back to what the difference is because false positives is um, is a type one error. and It's kind of, it's bad, but at least the person is safe. They don't have cancer. They probably just go through a lot of stress and maybe unnecessary uh, starting of treatment, but then eventually they'll probably find out they don't have cancer. Uh, hopefully, false negative, in my view, arguably more dangerous because things can progress and get worse. And that's why, like, yeah. that's how I remember that it's a type two error.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, in certainly in that circumstance, the type two error is the worst one. There could be some other kinds of yes. models, and of course, and where, yeah, they, it becomes a bigger issue to have the false positive. So, for example, maybe like, uh, a machine learning algorithm that, descends, that decides somebody should go to jail. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, or yeah, like uh, then maybe the false positives are, are even worse than the false negatives. You've already talked a bit about how in your course you have lots of examples, and you just now gave a great example with the cancer case study. Adelain, uh, do you have some more examples of applications of the kind of the three categories that you guys cover in your course?
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, first, uh, you know, the cancer prediction example that Carol just gave is one of the practical activity of the course. It is uh, actually in the classification uh, part because uh, I remind that the course is, in, you know, covers the three um, foundations, you know, essential branches of machine learning which are regression, classification and clustering. Regression and classification are part of supervised learning because you know what to predict. In uh, regression, what you have to predict is a continuous numerical number, a real value. And in uh, classification, what you have to predict is a category. And uh, in the category part, what we do is actually a, a breast cancer tumor prediction. So uh, uh, yes, so we have uh, this data set of uh, patients from different hospitals uh, for which uh, we have uh, gathered several features. Uh, like, um, you know, uh, uh, features uh, of their breast and other, you know, medical features, uh, which are, you know, numerical inputs. And as outputs, we have recorded whether they have had, uh, you know, a cancer tumor. So it's a binary problem. You know, in classification, you either have, you know, several categories to predict or just binary classification where you just have uh, two categories to predict, usually zero or one. And so in the data set, um, you have a zero if the cancer doesn't have, uh, sorry, if the patient doesn't have cancer, and one if the patient has cancer, and so that's a binary classification problem. And we solve this with logistic regression. Um, then another uh, practical activity that we do, especially for uh, linear regression, is uh, the prediction of the electrical energy output in combined cycle power plants. And so, same for this, we have the inputs. We always have the inputs, and in that case, it is. Um, features like the ambient temperature, uh, the wind velocity, uh, the exhaust vacuum, and other uh, features that you can measure you know with a sensor in uh, combined cycle power plants. So we have all these features, and we're trying to predict the electrical energy output. And we do that with a linear uh, regression model uh because um, you know as even though a linear regression model is very simple and in uh, one of the most basic machine learning problems uh, it still gives excellent results and people are still using it today in many uh, case studies so uh it, it's great to have uh, you know not only a, a model that is simple but also uh, that can still be widely useful today so that's for uh, the regression uh, branch and finally well uh, i ar- i've already uh, talked a bit about this but for the unsupervised learning, a uh, branch of machine learning, which here is uh, k-means clustering. Well, uh, we uh, do this case study of uh, customers in a mall for uh, whom we have uh, several features, such as the age, the estimated salary, and uh, how much they spend in the mall, you know, according to a, a spending score from one to a hundred. And we have no idea what to predict. We don't have a dependent variable because this is unsupervised learning, uh, but we are trying to identify Clusters of customers that have uh, different uh, attributes, you know, different properties, different, uh, uh, you know, uh, patterns of how they interact or how how they act in the mall, and uh, and so that's what the K-means uh, uh, clustering model will identify. So yes, that's the three practical activities uh, we do in the course, and uh, these are uh, quite real-world ones because I know that um, this is typically how you uh, you know can use machine learning, whether you do supervised machine learning or unsupervised machine learning in the real world. Could, could I just add a quick disclaimer? <clears throat> uh, it, uh, just so people
1: don't think we we collected that data from the hospitals, like uh, it, it just sounded to me. Um, um, it, like, you didn't
0: collect it, you stole it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we used an existing data set, of no. course, for the, the tumor data sets.
2: Yes, yes, that's a very good point. There is this uh, machine learning repository called the UCI Machine Learning Repository that gives uh, data sets that you can use uh, for free and uh, uh, that you just have to cite. So we always cite uh, those uh, data sets in our courses. Uh, But yes, these are usually old data sets. You can find some recent ones. But uh, yes, the ones that we use are uh, pretty old and uh, even from uh, the 20th century.
0: Yeah, I mean, the age of the data set for the purposes of teaching these concepts doesn't really matter all that much. uh, No, not really. Yeah, as long as it's an illustrative example. And all three of these sound like great illustrative examples with breast cancer, energy output, and shopping behavior clustering. Super cool. All right. So we've learned, uh, uh, you know, kind of some of the key concepts behind when a logistic regression model is behaving correctly so Kirill, you gave a detailed explanation of false positives and false negatives is when the model is incorrect um so can you tell us a bit more about what a a, what a logistic regression model returns like so in this um, cancer situation where the model is predicting whether there's a tumor there or not? Does it just output a zero or a one, a zero if there's not a tumor and a one if there is? John, you, I thought you would know this. <laughs> you, you have a course. <laughs> you teach this stuff.
1: Uh, I'm joking. I've had, I've had a lot of head injuries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's what that was one of the points that we wanted to um, share with our listeners that uh, these uh, classification models, they don't typically return either just a yes or no answer or a zero, one. Uh, they return a probability, a probability of um, a person having a tumor or a person not having a tumor, a customer leaving your shop or a customer staying with you. Whatever other thing that you're trying to classify, it's uh, returning the probabilities um, rather than the exact Output and then you decide what to do with those probabilities. And that's, I think, an important consideration. Um, in most cases, uh, what is done is if the probability is you know, 50% or more, then it's assigned uh, a positive uh, result. If uh, the probability is less than 50%, then it's assigned uh, a negative result. And that's how it's split somewhere in the middle. But you can change that. You can decide that maybe based on your uh, business uh, case or your application of the model or the domain knowledge that you have, you need a higher threshold for something to be a positive result. So you need it maybe to be a seventy percent um, prediction for it to be classified as a positive result. Like even in that case of uh, tumors, you might decide that well, for this model for this specific application, we want threshold to be higher, so we have um, a lower chance of um, Giving a positive result, so you know, because we'll check the, res- the rest of them down the line or something like that. But we really want it to, uh, to be hard for the model to classify somebody as having a tumor. Uh, or the opposite, you might want to have more of these. You want to, to set the threshold at 30% or 20% so that you get more of these results so that you don't miss any tumors. And then you can double check them with another model after that. So you have a bit of control there, actually, a lot of control and something to remember. Uh, when you're going into classification problems.
0: Nice. Thank you for illuminating that for me, Carol. (laughs) Anytime, John. (laughs) Uh, No, that's super well said, crystal clear. All right. And then so once you get those probabilities, and I kind of already alluded to this earlier, I ended up stepping on your toes (laughs) inadvertently. But um, so when you're getting these probabilities out and then you decide on some threshold, like maybe... With the cancer detection, you want to have, uh, you know, you don't just want to use 0.5 as the threshold as to whether something is detected as a tumor or not, because you're like, oh, you know, it's really bad if we have type two errors. So we'll lower that threshold. Um, so once you actually have a classification as to whether something is positive or negative, then we can do the kind of comparison that you were describing earlier with the real world to say whether something is a false positive or a false negative or true positive, true negative. Um, so as, as we're considering doing that, I mentioned earlier that we might wanna have some of the data kept on the side and so that our we know that our model wasn't trained on those data kept off on the side. So maybe you could fill us in a bit more on that process and what those like different kinds of data sets are. For. Of
1: course, of course. So uh, the basically we're talking about splitting a data into a training set and test set, and um, it's a important consideration for especially for people starting out because you don't want to be finding out the false positives and false negatives as as one of the reasons. You know, you don't want to be finding out false positives and false negatives later on when you're applying your data into the in the real world and then you see oh well this person you know they had they had cancer after all even though we told them they didn't Now this person we told them they did and they didn't have and you know like people have to go through all this um you know suffering and all the uh turmoil that that causes in their lives just for you to figure out that your model has you know like a 65 percent accuracy ratio that's not great because you want to know that in advance and learning about the accuracy ratio from your training data. So if you have this data that you train your model on, and then you just look back and see, oh, how did it go? Well, that's not exactly foolproof because the model uh, can be um, overfitted to your training data. The the model might be performing really, really well in your training, might have a 95% accuracy ratio, uh, and you might think that everything is great, happy days. But it just might be the case that your model has learned how to kind of cheat the system. It's like looking at your data, adjusting everything in the right way, just perfectly fit. Because that's ultimately what the machine learning algorithm needs to do. It's not, um, especially these rudimentary machine learning algorithms. They're uh, from the foundational ones. They're they're not super smart. That they're going to. And know exactly what you want, like ChatGPT, for example, <laughs> they, they will just um, try to do the best with the data that you give them. So that's why you want to hide right away from very start, you want to hide 20% of your data or maybe 30% of your data, it depends on the application, but typically we use 20% of the data. You want to hide it, not even show it to the model when you're creating it, create the model, train it, um, get it to, and then like get it to a final stage. And then before you deploy it in the real world, then that's when you take out your test data, the 20% that you set aside, and then you see how your model performs there. So effectively, you'll have two accuracy ratios. You'll have an accuracy ratio from your training data, which might be 95% or, you know, you want to aim for a higher, higher number there. But the real one, the one that you can evaluate your data with confidently, is your test data. And as long as you collect your data as a complete, like a true random sample, and as long as your data is overall representative of your the sample that you have, the training and test sample is representative of your of your population of you know the bigger world of all your patients or whatever you're predicting, then what you get from the test data the results is going to be a good representation of what you will likely get in the real world. So in your test data, you might get a smaller accuracy ratio, it might be 80%, but that's still already good. And that prepares you for the real world. But if in your test data, you get an accuracy ratio of 55%, as opposed to 95% in your trading data, that will tell you that there's a red flag and you shouldn't deploy that model. You should look at it again and uh, make adjustments. And you know, like that would be a dangerous thing to roll that model out.
0: Nice, makes perfect sense. So the test set allows us to be confident that our model hasn't just memorized some specific aspects of the training data, and so this means that our models then also more likely to be effective in the real world when it encounters um, data points it hasn't seen before.
1: And you like uh, that doesn't mean that you should just roll out your model and leave it. You should always still maintain your model, like. This is something we don't talk about in the course <laughs> because it's a bit more advanced, but hey, there's, a, there's an insight on the podcast uh, for the podcast extra one. So you want to maintain your models. You want to always check the models deteriorate over time. Things change, populations change. You know, if we're talking about tumors, you know, diets change, exercises change, the climate changes, pollution levels change. So your model will deteriorate over time. Uh, with, you know, a year, two years, whatever. So ne- they need to be monitored and you need to be always checking what is their accuracy ratio now? What, uh, you know, how many false positives are we getting? How many false negatives are we getting? And so on. In any industry, you know, in, in finance, regulation might change. And like all of overnight, your model might go from 80% accuracy to 43% accuracy because, you know, customers are no longer allowed to do this or banks are not allowed to do this, something, mm-hmm. some some activity. So yeah, models need to be trained well, but also monitored afterwards as well.
0: For sure. Yeah. And events that can happen in the real world that cause models to, to become out of date, especially quickly, like a global pandemic happens yeah. and real world behaviors change or a whole bunch of new language comes into the language of the world, like the word COVID. And so if you had some natural language model that was made before the pandemic and you never updated those model weights, and it doesn't know what the word COVID is, uh, the model might not perform very well um, anymore. And so when the real world changes around our model, we can call that feature drift. And we actually, there's uh, lots of startups out there that create tools for monitoring for feature drift uh, in production. And uh, yeah, so for example, yeah, we've had Bar Moses on the show in episode number 499 uh, talking about her company Monte Carlo, which uh, is designed to monitor feature drift in production. Um, So definitely an important real-world problem that can occur out there. Um, So um, another topic that um, seems like it's really important here is there could be situations where uh, our input variables... So you guys have said how whether it's supervised learning or unsupervised learning, you always have inputs into the model. But um, what if... Those inputs are on like completely different kinds of scales. So, you know, one of your inputs has a very narrow range of values and the other one has a very big range of values. Can that have a big negative impact on how your model shrinks?
2: Well, yes and no, because that depends on the model that you are using. Mm. And the problem is not only about having different scales. Because actually, you might have all your inputs in the same scale, but you would still need to have to apply feature scaling. So let's give the example of a data set where the features are all between 1 and 10. They're all into the same scale, so there's not this problem of having different scales. Well, yet, you would still have to apply feature scaling. So feature scaling is not only about putting all the features in the same scale, it's about putting all the features in the same scale, but that is a short range. And this short range can either be between zero and one, and that's normalization. Uh, so normalization is uh, you know you take your feature, uh, you subtract by by the minimum of your feature divided by the difference between the maximum and the minimum of your feature, and then you also have standardization, which will put all your features in the same scale, but not between zero and one, but rather between minus three and plus three, or minus two and plus two, because the formula of standardization is you take your feature, you uh, subtract the mean of your feature, and then you divide by the standard deviation of your feature. And that will put all the features in the same scales, which will be in a short range. And that uh, will uh, usually improve the performance of your model. But now coming back to your first question, when you asked me, do we have to apply feature scaling? And I told you yes and no. Well, that depends indeed on the model. For some models, you have to apply feature scaling. And I will mention which ones. And for others, you don't. So the You know, the the best way to understand this is to take, for example, linear regression. With linear regression, you don't have to apply feature scaling. And why is that? That's because the coefficients in linear regression can adapt to put all the products of coefficient times the feature in the same scale. So, you know, if you have one feature in a very large scale and the other... Well, if you have one feature in a very large scale, well, the coefficient associated with it, meaning the one that is multiplied to it, can be very small to, you know... Uh, put uh, that uh, product of the coefficient and the feature in uh, the same scale as the other products of coefficient and feature. So that's a, that's a good way to, to understand how feature scaling doesn't have to be applied for linear regression. But there is a rule of thumb in general. There is a, a way to remember much easily when to apply and when to not apply feature scaling. Uh, for example, you always have to apply feature scaling for gradient descent-based algorithms, which include logistic regression or all the neural networks based algorithm so just a quick explanation on what is gradient descent uh, you know uh, that's for supervised learning models where you have you know a dependent variable to predict so first you have you make um, your model will make some predictions then you will uh, compare your predictions to the ground truth you know the labels the real results and you and that incurs a loss and you will apply a gradient on the loss with respect to the weights and whenever you use that techniques uh, to reduce the loss with the gradient well you always have to apply feature scaling and uh, the other uh, on the other way around well uh, the models for which you don't have to imp- uh, apply feature scaling are the gradient boosting ones so you know all the models based on trees that uh, make predictions as a team for those models you don't have to you sh- you must not apply uh, feature scaling. So these include, of course, decision tree, regression or classification. These include random forest regression or classification, and also XGBoost, LightGBM, and, um, and CADBoost. So, uh, so yes, for those models, you don't have to apply feature scaling. You know, uh, we joked earlier about me not knowing
0: things, but that is something I did not know. Wow. I did not know that there were some types of models, categories of models, ones that don't use gradient descent, where you don't need to worry about feature scaling. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, super cool. All right, let's see what else I have to learn here. Um, <laughs> it won't be the next topic, which I am familiar with. Um, so um, there are, you, you've you've talked already in this episode about using accuracy as a benchmark of model performance. And I think this is conceptually a very straightforward to understand um, metric for evaluating a model. So you just take the cases that a model got right, divided by the total number of cases, and you've got accuracy. And you know, people use accuracy. Lay people use accuracy all the time. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense to focus on uh, for a machine learning level one course, as well as in this episode so far. But I understand that you would like to fill us in on some slightly more sophisticated metrics.
2: Yes, which is uh, the R squared. Um, so indeed, uh, for classification, uh, evaluating model is super intuitive to understand. You know, the model makes predictions, uh, by, if it's binary classification, zero one, And the accuracy will simply be the number of correct predictions divided by the total number of observations in a test set. So that's fine. However, uh, for regression, it's uh, not that intuitive to understand, simply because uh, what you have to predict is a numerical continuous number. And therefore, there is no such thing as, uh, uh, you know, the number of correct predictions. You know, usually the prediction will always be incorrect. So it's more like you will see how close the prediction is to the real result to assess whether that prediction is rather correct or incorrect. You know, the closer it is to the real result, the more correct it will be. And therefore, there is no such thing as uh, the accuracy for regression. And instead, uh, we have the R squared. And so the R squared is uh, indeed an evaluation metric for regression models uh, that will take values between uh, 0 and 1 and the closer the R squared will be to 1 the uh, more you know accurate but we should not say accurate the uh, better uh, predictions will give your regression model cool makes perfect sense and then I also know that there's something called
0: adjusted R squared what's that all about <laughs> <laughs> uh love it
1: john um so adjusted r squared is um a metric that we would it's better to use adjusted r square um to avoid a certain pitfall of a multiple linear regression where in a multiple linear regression um you can add more coefficients and more um, independent variables. As you add more independent variables and coefficients, um, what happens to the normal R squared? Um, without going into the math, so of course, like the, we explain this a bit more uh, detail in the course and the reasoning behind this. But um, in just uh, kind of like um, intuitive or high level sense, what how, why why it's dangerous to use uh, just the normal R squared? Is because as you add more uh, independent variables to your model uh, models and more coefficients uh, with them what can happen is your model can just disregard independent variables that uh, don't make any improvement to the model but it can take any improve any uh, independent variables that make a tiny slightly improvement to the model and the formula to r squared is such that it won't uh, get worse. Like the model has like a trick; it can cheat the system and can just zero out any new independent variables that will make the R squared worse. And it can accept tons and tons of independent variables. Especially if you have a problem where you have lots of features that you could be using, you don't know which ones to use, and you just keep adding them. Then through some random chance correlations, your R squared will be getting better and. You'll end up with a model of hundreds of independent variables that actually don't mean anything, but because of the way that R squared is structured, the model has accepted them. So that's why uh, adjusted R squared uh, was introduced, and that's what we want to share share on this podcast. Like the takeaway from from this point that we're sharing in the podcast is that the difference between R squared and adjusted R squared is that adjusted R squared penalizes your multiple linear regression model for having uh, extra um, variables, extra independent variables. And so that means that the variable has to actually make a good enough uh, impact, has to have add enough value to the model that is greater than the penalty that your model is getting in order for that variable to be accepted. So it's a way of um, building models with a reasonable number of variables where they all actually add Useful value to the model, but not
0: random chance min- minor yes. correlations. So, to give some like specific examples, so you're saying that R squared is a useful metric for evaluating models, particularly where um, we don't have some ca- categorical output. So, with the cancer detection model, we have this uh, binary oh, yes, class. Yes, then and, you would. Yeah, so it's use, like, then you, you can use accuracy. use accuracy. Accuracy. Um, but you could actually, you could use R-squared in those circumstances as well, because um, that is, can still be an interesting metric because it tells you the proportion of the variance explained in your outcome. So you can use it, that R-squared is equivalent to saying like, um, if you get an R-squared of 0.9, it means that your, what you call the independent variables there, the features, the inputs to your model, they together explain 90% of the change in your outcome. Um, which could be, uh, in, in classification, could be the cancer, uh, you know, is cancer present or not, or with your energy output example, it's, you know, how much energy is the uh, power plant outputting,
2: I guess, is the outcome.
0: Um,
2: yes, electrical energy output, yeah.
0: Electrical energy output. Um, but yeah, you make a really good point here. The adjusted R squared is critical because um, let's take that energy output example if you had 200 possible inputs, independent variables, features that you could be putting into your model, if you just include all those, you'll, like you said, by random chance, you'll probably get an R squared of perfect because there's just so much opportunity for random, meaningless variation to be, um, to appear to be meaningful. Um, so the adjusted R squared penalizes you for adding more, um, more, more inputs to your model, more independent variables.
1: That's very cool. Thanks, John. I learned something new today as well about uh, applying uh, R-squared <laughs> to classification
0: problems. That's really cool. Hey, there you go. It's uh, data science. There's an infinite amount out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you'll never, you can never know everything. Absolutely. Um, cool. All right. So um, we've talked about regression models a lot. So whether we're talking about the, um, the binary uh, classification model. So in that case, we're using logistic regression. And then we also have uh, linear regression for predicting like these continuous outputs, like uh, how much energy is being output by the power plant. So are there particular kinds of circumstances where a novice data scientist might use a regression model, but there's something, you know, it wasn't the right choice. Like there's there's something about the real world where even though they can apply regression, um it 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 will give wacky
1: results. Okay, yeah, sure. This is uh assumptions of linear regression. So this is specifically to linear regression. It uh oh, wouldn't, okay, wouldn't apply to like uh logistic regression, which would be a classification type model. But for a linear regression, um there's five main assumptions, and I love this. Like I spent a few days preparing this. Uh, tutorial and um, I loved it because uh, wherever, like, whenever you search online, like, you get different results. Some people say there's six or seven assumptions. There's some people say there's five. Some people say these assumptions. Some people say other assumptions. So there's not like one independent source of truth for, for this um, um, tutorial. And I couldn't find a really high quality video, so I am very excited about like what we created here. Um, and basically, there's five assumptions. Of linear regression that I'll outline now. We'll go through them quite quickly. Um, we'll share a link in the, for the show notes. Like We created a cheat sheet that people can download for these assumptions of linear regression so people can go to the show notes and just get it there. It's like a nice one page PDF that you can download, keep, and even print. Um, so assumption number one is linearity. So basically, we're not going to go into how to do all of these things programmatically or how to check these assumptions. You know, on a mathematical basis, we'll be talking about like eyeballing your data and just gauging from that. So when you look at your data, if you want to apply like a multiple linear regression or linear regression, um, when you look at your data, you should see generally like a linear relationship. Like it should look like a linear relationship too. If it looks something like a very different, like, um, like a, I don't know, like an exponential relationship or, a um, um, I don't know, like, Basically anything but a linear kind of chart probably shouldn't be applying linear regression to it because you get incorrect conclusions. Now assumption number two is homoscedasticity. Very (laughs) cool word, but basically means equal variance. So when you look at your data, if you imagine like a um, like a just a line chart with with a horizontal like not horizontal like a slightly sloped trend, and your data like just imagine scatter plot going along this uh, your 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 points of your data are scattered along this uh, sloped trend line, that's your kind of data that you're applying your linear regression to, you don't want to see that uh, data in a cone kind of shape. You don't want the space between the data points and your presumed trend line to be increasing over as you progress further to the right or decreasing as you progress further to the right. If you see a cone shape, that means uh, that variance is dependent on uh, the... Independent variable, and that's not good. That's uh, not homoscedastic data. So you, you don't want to be applying linear regression to that. Then assumption number three is multivariate normality. You basically, if you if you have your um, line uh, assumed trend line, and if you look along the line, like imagine you're looking along the line, and you have data your data points to the right and then to the left, you want them to be um, normally uh, distant from this line. So you want kind of normal distribution around this line. If you see something else, um, again, that wouldn't be a good candidate for linear regression. Number four is independence of observations, which also includes the, uh, you might see an assumption called no autocorrelation in other sources. And that basically means your data points should be independent of each other. You can't have a situation where one uh, data point is is, uh, affecting the next data point, affecting the next data point and so on. A classic example of this is the stock market like this in the stock market data points in the price to d- right now affects the price in the next hour price affects the price in the next hour and so on. So they're not independent, shouldn't be applying a linear regression <laughs> to modeling the stock market. You probably won't get the best outcomes. Um, and the fifth final assumption is lack of multicollinearity. You don't want your um, uh, independent variables to be uh, correlated. You want them to be uncorrelated as much as possible. Because if they are correlated, um, you can still run a, a linear regression. Problem is that your coefficients um, will not be very reliable. Um, okay, we can go into detail on that, but we won't. Basically, coefficients can um, you know vary because you have. You imagine just having the same variable in twice in your linear regression, then the coefficients don't know what to do. Which one should be bigger? Which one should be smaller? So our coefficients won't be very reliable. You won't be able to. Uh, predict um, the impact of each variable based on the coefficients. There's one more, there's a, like the FIIs assumption, there's a sixth one, but it's not an assumption, it's more of a check. You should always check for outliers. Uh, if your uh, data set has outliers, you should decide for yourself if you want to model it with the outliers or if you want to remove the outliers before modeling. Some sources will include that as a assumption, it's not actually an assumption, it's more of a check. So yeah, once again, it's quite hard to visualize these things on a podcast. We ran through them quite quickly uh, there's going to be a PDF in the show notes. Please go ahead and download it. Um, you know, it's it's for your use. There, we want to we want people to be aware of these assumptions before you use linear regressions.
0: Nice, super cool rundown, and that PDF will definitely be helpful. I was able to follow what you were saying there, but maybe if it was the first time I'd ever learned those, it would be tricky. So I'm sure the PDF will come in handy for many of our listeners out there. Um, so in your course, you include a lot of topics. Actually, like that one, you know, assumptions of a linear regression, you get deep into the weeds on some topics that a lot of other beginner courses would just ignore. And so, for example, you guys cover things like k-means plus plus, adjusted r-squared, which we already talked about, the confusion matrix, which we alluded to a little bit earlier in the episode, things like ordinary least squares. So lots of relatively complex topics that beginner courses would usually skip, but you guys didn't Why not? And maybe you could let us know about a specific method called the elbow method, which I had not heard about before, truly.
2: Okay. So uh, indeed, uh, yes, we basically do not skip, uh, you know, the concepts that are very important in the machine learning pipeline. You know, this whole process from uh, start to finish, where you first uh, pre-process your data up to making predictions and then deploying your model. Each of the tools that are used during this process, we cover them and we explain them. And it's true that for uh, unsupervised learning and especially clustering, uh, we use the elbow method uh, to figure out uh, the optimal number of clusters. Because it's true that when you do unsupervised learning with clustering, not only you don't know what to predict, but also you don't know uh, the optimal number of clusters that you want to identify. So if we take again this uh, data set of customers in the mall, Uh, Sure, you know that you want to identify clusters of customers, but you don't know how many. And there is an optimal number that will lead to, you know, uh, great results. And the method, you know, the technique that will help you figure out this right number, this optimal number, is the elbow method. And why is it called the elbow method? Because it's actually a code that will plot a graph, uh, you know, the graph of a curve that looks like an elbow, and that (laughs) optimal number of clusters will be found at the elbow. You know, mm. you just project the elbow onto the, uh, the x-axis because, you know, in the x-axis, you have the different numbers of clusters that you experiment. And on the y-axis, you have what we call the within cluster sum of squares. So the within cluster sum of squares is simply uh, the sum of the squared distances between the observation points, meaning the customers and the centroids of the clusters. So I'll give you a simple example. If, um, if for example, we have uh, you know one thousand customers in the mall, and if we have one thousand clusters, then the within cluster sum of squares will be zero because each of the customer is the centroid itself. So the square difference, the square distances is zero, and the sum is zero. However, if you have one cluster, then you have uh, therefore one centroid, and you will have a huge uh, number of the within cluster sum of squares because you will have to uh, you know. Non null distances from each customer to the centroid. And so you see it's a curve that starts uh, high, you know, because when uh, you have a, um, a low number of clusters, you have a big within cluster sum of squares number. And, so, and then it reduces as the number of clusters you experiment increases. And so at this point, uh, at some point around in the middle of the curve, you have the elbow, and that's where you find the optimal number of clusters. And that's the elbow method, figuring, helping you figure this out.
0: Nice. Super cool. I'm glad to have learned about it. It's probably the reason why I hadn't heard of it is I have not actually done that much clustering in my career. Um, so great. Lots for me to learn in machine learning uh, Python level one, review <laughs> course. Um, so uh, speaking of which, the level one implies to me that there's at least one SQL planned for this. You know, You guys got something in the works. What's going on over there?
2: Yes, we do, we do. Uh, So, um, actually, uh, our original idea was to make a series. You know, uh, instead of making uh, just one course, we wanted to make a series, (laughs) like in uh, in cinema, kind of. And uh, it's a series in three levels, machine learning level one, machine learning level two, and machine learning level three. And so, indeed, in machine learning level one, we cover all the foundations of uh, machine learning. Uh, Then in machine learning level two, we do and implement and learn about more advanced models and for different uh, case studies and different uh, applications of machine learning. And uh, in level three, we cover uh, like even more advanced models, but for more, you know, specialized applications. So these are all the deep learning models, neural networks applied to, for example, computer vision, object recognition, uh, and, uh, and other, uh, you know, let's say, uh, less standard applications. So yes, a machine learning level two is in the pipeline. Yes.
0: Super cool. So yeah, more advanced models coming up soon, no doubt. Uh, Very exciting. And so there will probably be more super data science podcast episodes uh, featuring some high level summaries of the topics. I love that we did this episode. I don't think Certainly since I've been hosting the show, I don't think we've had an episode like this where it was really like, this is an intro to machine learning. Let's cover all the topics. Kirill, had you done something like this before? No, I don't think
1: it? so. I don't think so. It's a,
0: it's a first. Yeah. Super cool. So sure, there are lots of audience members out there that will love it. I've got, uh, prior to this episode, as I mentioned, at the beginning of the episode, I posted on social media that you guys would be on the air. We got tons of engagement from people and we have time... For one question from Lalit Ravi Shankar Tangirala. He's a data management analyst and he says, Kirill, Adlan, do you think in future technologies like ChatGPT, these will replace AI ML jobs? Mm-hmm. There's a cool book, uh, which I think I read
1: 2013, 14, maybe 15. It's called Will Humans Go the Way of Horses? Uh, and back in the day, like um you know 19th century uh there were like horses everywhere no cars right like ch- cars were just starting out and so on and um people were worried you know like there's you know there's problems related with you know, having horses around things like that and then these cars started and people were like ah oh, like what what will happen you know they they nobody really believed in these cars you know horses will stay and then bam all of a sudden uh cars are everywhere we don't see horses in cities anymore So, the question is like basically, that question is will uh, humans go the same way as horses did? And I don't believe so. I think uh, humans are very adaptable. And, you know, like if you look at 100 years ago, I'm probably misquoting these stats, but approximately like around 90% of the US population was in agriculture. Now is it, what is it, 5%, right? So, but Mm -hmm. have people become unhappy? Have people become redundant as in like lost their jobs or no need. No, we have a higher population than ever. And everybody has a job Well, most people have jobs. Most people have found ways to apply themselves and rediscover, reinvent themselves. So I think um, the better way of looking at it is it's inevitable. It's going to uh, impact our jobs, but we can use it as
0: a tool rather than see it as a threat. Great answer, um, nice. All right, so it's been so much fun catching up with both of you on air. I've loved this episode. Uh, after this episode ends, which sadly all good things must come to an end, how can our listeners uh, keep track of what you guys are up to? Um, yeah, just, I guess,
1: uh, it's a good question. <laughs> I didn't even think of it. The Well, first of all, you can find the course at superdatasciencecom slash start if you are interested to check it out. Um and so slash start And other than that, Adlan and I have a book. Like each one of us has their own book. You can you can find those. You can follow us on mostly LinkedIn, right? Adlan, I would say LinkedIn is the best way to find us out of all the social media.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, for me,
1: is uh, it's LinkedIn or Instagram. Yes. Oh yes, in, in Adlan, Instagram as well. So yeah, that's that's that. Um, and yeah, we'll be in touch. We've got some exciting things that we're working on, and I'm sure you'll hear from us again soon.
0: Sweet. Can't wait. Thanks so much, gentlemen, and catch you on the Super Data Science Podcast again sometime soon.
1: Thanks, John. Thank you, John.
0: It's always a blast to be hanging out with Kirill and Adlain. Hope you had fun too and learned a lot. I certainly did in today's episode. Kirill and Adlai filled us in on how supervised learning requires labeled data while unsupervised learning and proceed without it. They also talked about how false positives are so-called type one classification errors, wherein say someone without cancer is flagged as having it. In contrast, false negatives are often serious type two classification errors, wherein say a patient has cancer, but the machine learning model outputs that they're healthy. They also talked about how having a held out set of test data enables us to ensure that our ML model hasn't simply memorized specific unique characteristics of our training data, how the R-squared metric allows us to evaluate models with a continuous outcome like a regression model, and how the elbow method allows us to find the optimal number of clusters of data with an unsupervised machine learning approach. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Kirill and Atlan's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 649. That's superdatascience.com 649. If you too would like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries for them. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and yes, Kiro himself on the Super Data Science team for producing another super educational episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this free show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com podcast. Last but not least, thanks to you for listening. We would not be here at all without you. So... Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.